Good evening. Ukraine's President Zelensky is in Washington begging for arms as Russia plans an offensive. Peru in turmoil, Trump's taxes, refugee crisis at the border, a gate at Central Park for the exonerated, and an assault on the home and office of a Chelsea City Council member. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. The Kremlin warned yesterday increasing the supply of U.S. arms to Ukraine would prolong the bloody 10-month war. Meanwhile, Russia's defense minister called for expanding Moscow's military by at least half a million troops. President Vladimir Putin says the conflict has taught Russia lessons on how to strengthen the armed forces. He added the country would also develop its nuclear arms. He called them the main guarantee of Russia's sovereignty, including a new nuclear-armed ICBM named Sarmat, Russian for Satan. The rhetoric came as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky met with President Joe Biden and then spoke to a joint session of Congress. At a news conference yesterday, Biden promised another $1.8 billion in aid to Ukraine on top of $50 billion that's already been sent. Today, I'm announcing the next tranche of our security assistance to Ukraine. $1.85 billion package of security assistance that includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs, as well as contracts to supply ammunition Ukraine will need in the months ahead for its artillery, its tanks, and its rocket launchers. Critically, in addition to these new capabilities, like precision aerial munitions, the package will include a Patriot missile battery, which will and one which will train Ukrainian forces to operate as part of the ongoing effort to help bolster Ukraine's air defense. It's going to take some time to complete the necessary training, but the Patriot battery will be another critical asset for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russian aggression. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says the expansion of Western weapons supplies to Ukraine has led to an aggravation of the conflict and, in fact, does not bode well for Ukraine. But the warning had no effect on Zelensky, a former comedian. He traded jokes with Biden. Can we make a long story short and give Ukraine all capabilities it needs and uh, liberate all territories rather sooner than later? Thank you. His answer is yes. (laughs) I agree. Later, in a historic address to Congress aimed at sustaining U.S. and allied aid for Ukraine's defense, Zelensky thanked every American for their support of his country. A former advisor to the U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission at the State Department, James Carden, spoke with the news after Zelensky's speech. Carden says Ukraine is making a desperate gamble on the eve of a major Russian offensive. Once the ground freezes in Ukraine and in Belarus and in Russia, which should be soon, the Russians are going to launch a major offensive. And the Ukrainians, as you point out, simply don't have the manpower to withstand it. If it looks like uh, Ukraine's going to be overrun, and let's say overrun as far as, you know, the Polish border and Hungarian borders, is the U.S. going to send troops in and try and hold uh, Western Ukraine? There are some people who are floating that idea, notably the disgraced former general and CIA director, David Petraeus, who has been on the media circuit saying that the United States should create a coalition of the willing, because there's no way 
that the French or the Germans and other members of NATO are going to go along with sending troops on the ground. Your listeners might be alarmed to know that the United States has troops in Romania already poised to enter. I believe it's the 82nd and 101st Airborne. Uh, I think about 20,000 troops in Romania. I don't think that it's going to come to that. I would be very surprised the Biden administration does that, but that's something that the Ukrainians desperately want. The problem is, is that even tens of thousands of, let's say, American, Polish, and Romanian troops are really not going to be able to do much against what the Russians uh, have amassed. And the Russians, by most reports, have amassed somewhere between 400 and 500,000 troops. So Zelensky's best bet would be to sue for peace. But I don't think anyone in the United States government is pushing him to do that at the moment. Yeah, what is the goal of the United States in a situation they must know is troublesome? I don't think the Russian goal is to occupy the entire country. It's for them to carve out the parts of the country that have traditionally been, over centuries, Russian. So we're looking at the east and southeast portions of the country, the four oblasts that were formally annexed by the Russian Federation within the last month or so. No, I don't think an entire takeover is, it's, mm-hmm. first of all, it's not possible. As we saw in February and March, the goal is to carve out that portion of Ukraine that includes Russian-speaking population. Western Ukraine is Eastern Hungary. Watch this space, right? Because there are already been some clashes between the mm-hmm. Poles and the Ukrainians, and there's some been some complaining on, on the part of the uh, Hungarians that Hungarian Ukrainian citizens are being sent to the front, not the ethnic Ukrainians. There's a lot of the ethnic tension isn't just between the Ukrainians and the Russians in that mm-hmm. country. That's an interesting development that is worth mm-hmm. keeping an eye on. Sure. NATO, you were mentioning countries that make up NATO, they're talking so strongly, they're providing arms and weapons of different sorts to Ukraine, but you're saying that the commitment is uh, an inch thick and a mile wide. I think that's right. I mean, Germany recently came out and basically admitted that they're out of stuff to give them. Not dissimilar to what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, recently said. He admitted that we've really come to the end of the um, amount of artillery uh, we can provide them. There are provisions in the new National Defense Authorization Act aimed at restocking the Pentagon stocks. The Germans are running out of things to give them. There's really no stomach among the uh, publics within Germany and France and Italy and Hungary for a war. Really, this is something that the Poles and the, the Baltic states are really leading the charge on, but there's really deep divisions within Europe over this. James Carden is a reporter and former advisor to the U.S. State Department. In more war news, Russian forces pounded populated areas with more missiles and artillery, shelling areas around the city of Nikopol in Ukraine's southeast. Nikopol is across the Dnieper River from the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant. Russian forces currently occupy the plant, Europe's largest nuclear power station. And in more international news, yesterday morning, Mexican ambassador to Peru, Pablo Monroy, accompanied the wife of former Peruvian president Pedro Castillo, her name is Lilia Paredes, to Mexico as a political refugee.
On Tuesday, the government of President Dina Bularte gave the Mexican ambassador 72 hours to leave the country, declaring him a persona non grata for allegedly interfering in Peru's internal affairs. The announcement comes after Peru's new government declared a state of emergency to quell protests springing up across the country in the days after popularly elected President Castillo was impeached. At least 27 demonstrators have been killed by police and soldiers since. Mexico declared the expulsion unfounded and reprehensible. Peruvian journalist Francesca Manuel says Castillo has made errors, but those mistakes were exploited by right-wingers who have controlled the country's Congress for decades. A year and a half ago, Pedro Castillo was elected. He was the first president who claimed that was elected and was coming from the working class that Peru elected in 200 years since its independence. Most of the people who voted for him were coming from the Andes, were indigenous people and working class people. He offered that he was going to transform the country, he was going to reduce inequality, and people believe in him and identify with him. When his victory was announced, the right-wing politicians and parties contested the election, said that the elections were fraudulent, which is a lie because there was no evidence of those claims, but also the Organization of American States and the European Union showed that those elections were transparent and were not fraudulent. But these right-wing forces uh, tried to oust him before he was inaugurated as president. Eventually, they couldn't, so he was inaugurated. But the first week in his of his presidency, they started trying to impeach him with diverse, ridiculous, most of the time, um, arguments. Over the course of the year and a half that Castillo was the president, unfortunately, he didn't comply with the promises he offered to the population in Peru. He got close to different people that were involved in cases of corruption. There were many evidence and proof of that. The right-wing politicians who kind of captured, in a sense, Congress in Peru, used those evidence to continue trying to impeach him. Pretty much every week they announced that they were going to impeach him, but they didn't have enough votes to do that. On the other side, Castillo was treated horribly. He was compared with a donkey. He was receiving, by the media, horrible insults, uh, racial insults, because he is a working class and indigenous person. At this point, we have to see that there is a clash between the elite in Peru that has been ruling the country for these 200 years and the working class in Peru, indigenous class, or the indigenous people who have never had the opportunity to be represented in the highest level of, of politics in Peru. Let's talk about the protesters and what has been happening in the streets of Peru right now. So now under the presidency of Dina Boluarte, who succeeded Castillo, she coordinated just with the right-wing forces within Congress. And 
she announced a cabinet full of right-wing forces that were seen by the population as illegitimate, as the ones who were trying to out Castillo since mm. the beginning. Yep. So people are against of these authorities because they don't see them as legitimate, and they started protesting. Mm -hmm. The new president announced a state of emergency throughout the whole country and deployed the military and the police. At this moment, two weeks after she was sworn in, we have 27 people who have been killed by the military and the police. And there hasn't been established any channels of dialogue with the protesters. Emmanuel says the government has been making ominous comparisons between today's protesters and the violent actions of the former Shining Path guerrilla army that was responsible for 30,000 dead in the 1990s. The allegation dehumanizes the poor, paving the way for a crackdown. It helped to destroy the left in Peru because it was used, how you can see it right now, uh, that argument that people who are protesting or who are demanding more from the government are part of the shining path. And Castillo's in jail right now. Is he going to get out of jail or is he going to... Castillo now is in pre-trial detention. His situation is, is pretty unfair. His immunity was taken away by Congress in an express process super quickly without, without going through the due process. So that's why he, he is behind bars, let's say. Also, he's behind bars right now under charges of rebellion, which is something that you can compare to what he did, because in Peru, rebellion is armed insurrection. And Castillo didn't commit any armed insurrection or didn't organize any armed insurrection. In fact, when Alberto Fujimori in 1992 announced a coup also deployed the military and he actually executed his coup, the prosecutors were not able to process Fujimori because of the coup he executed. The criminal code in Peru doesn't have that kind of crime. A little different than these democratic revolutions you see in other countries. I mean, do you see a move in that direction at all? Because Peru has been run pretty much forever by neoliberal governments or right-wing governments. When Alberto Fujimori ran the country, Alberto Fujimori, a former dictator of Peru, he destroyed the party system in Peru. So now, if there are elections tomorrow, it's very unlikely that leftist movements will be able to run in that election. At this moment, only right-wing parties and one, quote-unquote, leftist discredited party are registered as, as parties that can run nationally in elections. This also is connected with how the the social framework or the or the social movements have been shattered during the past 30 40 years in Peru Peruvian journalist Francesca Emanuel on Tuesday Peru's Congress tentatively endorsed a plan to hold early elections 
and in national news. A report released by the Democratic majority in the House Ways and Means Committee indicated the Trump administration may have disregarded an IRS requirement dating back to 1977 that mandates audits of a president's tax filings. The report came after the committee voted to release Trump's returns that he had declined to make public when he first ran for president. Democrats on the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee argued that transparency and the rule of law were at stake, while Republicans countered that the release would set a dangerous precedent with regard to the loss of privacy protections. This is about the presidency, not the president, Democrat Richard Neal of Massachusetts told reporters. As it relates to the mandatory audit program, was non-existent. The tax forms were really never audited. And only my sending a letter at one point prompted sort of a uh, rearview mirror uh, response. But Republican committee member Kevin Brody says releasing Trump's tax returns is an assault on Americans' privacy rights. Our concern is not whether the president should have made his tax returns public, as is traditional, nor about the accuracy of his tax returns. That is for the IRS and the taxpayer to determine. Our concern is that, if taken, this committee action will set a terrible precedent that unleashes a dangerous new political weapon that reaches far beyond the former president and overturns decades of privacy protections for average Americans that have existed since the Watergate reforms. Our current law was put in place to prevent presidents and members of Congress from targeting political enemies through their tax returns. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court chose not to intervene to stop the flimsy and admittedly partisan Democrat efforts to target former President Trump for purely political reasons. The result is that longstanding privacy protections for all taxpayers have been compromised. The committee's move represents yet another challenge for Trump. Just a day after the January 6th committee recommended criminal charges against the former president, he's also facing an investigation in Atlanta and his family business, the Trump Organization, was convicted earlier this month of tax fraud charges. And in more national news, the state of Texas has militarized a stretch of the international border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. The unprecedented move comes in anticipation of the end of Title 42, a public health law from 1944 that's been used since the Trump administration to keep migrants out of the United States due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered National Guard troops to the Rio Grande just a few days before the policy was set to end. Yesterday, El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser declared a state of emergency, and his deputy mayor joined him in a news conference to discuss the policies. They include sweeping people off the streets into detention centers. By calling it a state of emergency, it gives us the ability today to be able to do things we couldn't do until we called it, and that's our shelters, and put people in shelters and make sure that they're safe. But we have ordinances that uh, keep us from putting a lot of people in certain buildings, we can do that now if we can do it the safe way with the uh, fire department and, uh, and proper personnel. What the declaration does is does allow us to do other items as needed as we see this surge continue to rise. And that could be in, in, in the form of, of having to, to, to direct people off the street and put them into sheltering operations. It's for the safety of themselves, the migrants passing through our community, community members, and everyone involved. 
The massive influx of refugees is being fueled by the ongoing exodus of people from Venezuela and Nicaragua, where political unrest and the effects of U.S. sanctions have made worse a long drought linked to global warming-induced climate change. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams emailed to city council members saying the city shelter system is at capacity and he's calling on the state and feds to help. When Title 42 ends, officials expect a thousand new arrivals to the city each week. The mayor added the city has already sheltered 31,000 asylum seekers in 60 emergency shelters. And despite the generally warm reception for Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, at least two Republicans refused to stand during an ovation that lasted several minutes. Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, both stalwart Trump supporters, also refused to stop for a security check before entering the chamber. In related news, the two members and a third, Marjorie Taylor Greene, have been feuding over who will become Speaker of the House when a Republican majority takes over next month. Green supports minority leader Kevin McCarthy for the Post, but Gates and Boebert took an opportunity to attack Green at a news conference, bringing up Green's infamous Jewish space laser slur. Someone who we all respect, Marjorie Taylor Green, says Kevin McCarthy is going to be a great speaker. I guess you'll have to ask Marjorie about that. I'm, I'm a fan of hers. I'm an admirer, but it's not something we see the same way. Lauren? Uh, well, you know, I, I've been um, aligned with Marjorie and accused of believing a lot of the things that she believes in. I don't believe in this, just like um, I don't believe in Russian space so, lasers. Are, are you a hard no? Space lasers and <laughs> okay. all of this. No, I, I'm just saying we, we need to actually have an inside conversation okay. and, and, and make sure that these promises are there. Although once a favorite for the job, McCarthy has fallen short of the votes he'll need. Representative Steve Scalise has been mentioned as a rival for the job. And closer to home, in local news, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, Manhattan Community Board 10 in Harlem, and the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation unveiled the exonerated gate in Central Park this week. The gate of the exonerated is inspired by the acquittal of the exonerated five from the 1989 case where five young men were wrongly convicted of a crime and unjustly served prison sentences from six to 12 years. Mayor Adams was there to unveil the new gate. When their mom went to the precincts and their family members went to the precinct, I can only think about when I was in the department, mommy going through 103rd precinct trying to get Eric Adams out of that precinct after being attacked and brutalized by police officers. This is our story. This, this, the exonerated five, is the American black boy man story. That's what it is. And so when this gate is placed here, it is sending a strong message. The newly named gate, Central Park's first named gate since 1862, honors all who have been wrongfully convicted and recognizes the ongoing struggle and fight to ensure justice for all. In 1862, the city decided to name 20 gates to the park, inspired by a democratic vision of the park belonging to all New Yorkers. The names were intended to, quote, be representative of the whole people, extend to each citizen a respectful welcome, and recognize the occupations, pursuits, and attributes of all New Yorkers and those who would visit the park. Two anti-drag protesters were arrested on Monday evening after getting into Hell's Kitchen Council member Eric Botcher's apartment building. The arrest came amid escalating anti-gay attacks. The two women arrested were allegedly part of a demonstration that left the sidewalk outside Botcher's Chelsea home covered in vile slurs and followed days of the gay legislator being subjected to hate speech. 
The protests are apparently a response to Botcher's support of a drag story hour at the Andrew High School branch of the New York Public Library on West 20th Street in Chelsea on Saturday. There, folks in drag read stories to children. On Tuesday morning, Botcher released video, which he says showed members of the same group attacking one of his neighbors. Botcher was also targeted by a phone threat. Eric, cancel bitch. You're a pedophile who likes little boys and little girls. You're a disgrace. The group is called Gays Against Groomers, claiming on Twitter to be against what they call the recent trend of indoctrinating and sexualizing children. In other parts of the country, armed protesters have intimidated similar drag story hours, including in Dayton, Ohio, where AR-15 wielding members of the Proud Boys paraded outside the venue. And finally, donning a mask, Mayor Eric Adams urged New Yorkers to protect themselves against a swirl of viral illnesses in the city, including COVID-19 and RSV. He was joined by Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwan Vasan, who urged New Yorkers to wear masks. There are sensible precautions we can all take to protect each other. A couple weeks ago, I issued a health advisory that urges New York City residents to use high-quality masks when indoors in public settings and in crowded outdoor settings. This is meant to reflect the reality that we are back to moving about the world in ways that feel somewhat normal, doing our holiday shopping, using the subway, going to school. And it's important that we take precautions as we do so, especially so we can spend time with loved ones this holiday safely and secure in the knowledge that we're doing everything we can to keep ourselves and our families safe. This is especially important for people who are or who are getting together with people at increased risk for complications from COVID, RSV, or the flu, such as those who are 65 and older, people who are immunocompromised, and or have an underlying chronic health condition. The advisory also strongly recommends people six months or older get their COVID-19 primary series vaccination if they haven't already and should receive their updated bivalent booster if eligible. You can get your booster shot and your flu shot at the same time. And the fact is that the vast majority of people hospitalized with COVID and dying from COVID today are unvaccinated or incompletely vaccinated. The number of COVID cases has jumped since Thanksgiving and now stands at about 3,600 a day, although the real number is much higher with the prevalence of at-home testing. Flu cases have also skyrocketed, although a bright spot. Cases of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, appear to have peaked last month. And that's the news for Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.